to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Scott Cooper, Managing Partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Scott, we're so happy to uh, have you on the program today. Uh, the audience doesn't know this, but we uh, tried, we've been trying for months to have you on, and you're such a busy guy, so we really appreciate your being able to Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and apologies. I know, yeah, we rescheduled a few times, but we're here now, so let's uh, let's take advantage of that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, you are, and I'll uh, uh, spool the ending of the story here, you are an attorney, but uh, evidently you ne- never practiced, so even yeah. taught in law school, so that's kind of interesting. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about uh, about your journey? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, I went to law school actually intending to be a lawyer. So I I, uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do and uh, spent a bunch of time in law school kind of looking at stuff. I always liked kind of the corporate transactional side of the business. Um, and I had kind of a formative experience uh, my second year summer. Uh, I was at a firm in New York that did a lot of kind of uh, corporate uh, defense, hostile, ta- hostile takeover defense work. And uh, just found uh, that when I would go to the meetings, I was just much more intellectually interested in kind of what the bankers were talking about on the numbers and the valuation of the deal versus kind of what the lawyers were talking about in terms of their strategy. And so that was kind of my turning point, at least in terms of deciding that I thought doing something more purely business oriented uh, versus practicing law would be would be interesting. Um, And then I really just uh, kind of have been lucky throughout my whole career. I went from there into investment banking. Um, and that was certainly a function of being in Silicon Valley in the kind of dot com boom period where pretty much, you know, anybody who could spell prospectus would get a job <laughs> at an investment bank because they just needed people. At that time, we sat, as you may recall, we sat at the printers and yeah, did, yeah, know, yeah. prospectuses. Um, and then I had a happenstance meeting uh, with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz when they started a company in 1999. And kind of the rest is just from there. So we we spent, you know, nine years with that company and then now 13 and a half years with this company. And so it's been you know, a bit of a circuitous path, but uh, definitely one that's been exciting and uh, lots of interesting twists and turns along the way. Well, I know what you mean about like the summer job and being there, because a lot of times we're on these conference calls and like the bankers are spelling out the strategy and it's up to the lawyers just to carry it out. Right. Uh, we're really just drafting what the uh, uh, what the bankers need done. So I could see how you would come away saying, hey, I'd rather be a banker. You know? Yeah. I also read, a, a, I read this interesting book. I don't know if you've ever read it called The Lost Lawyer by a guy named Arthur Cronman, who no. I think was a Harvard Law professor. He may have now be a Yale Law professor. It was an interesting story about kind of the history of lawyers as business counselors to clients. And, you know, he was he was, you know, talking a little bit about kind of it as a bygone era to, to some uh, uh, some extent. Um, and it was a really interesting perspective for me on kind of, um, again, uh, you know, what I just found most interesting in, in that kind of work and really kind of helped me just kind of push me in a different direction. So no no, uh, no, no offense to any of the lawyers in the audience, but for me, it was just kind of a path that at least made more sense than uh, going down the corporate transactional route. Well, speaking of books, you are the author of a very well-known book in, uh, in the venture capital space, Secrets of Sandhill Road. We have a copy here in the office, and kudos to you. It's a, it's a very good book, very handy book. Thank and you. what struck me was at the beginning, one thing that you left out, you had thought about being a country music singer. <laughs> I did, yeah. yeah that's a... 
Was it more George Strait or Florida Georgia Line or kind of who who, who were you? You know, uh, kind of all of the above. Uh, you know, I'm a big Zach Brown fan too. For those, oh of you great, who are he's great. Fans, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, this was that was always a pipe dream, I should say, as opposed to an actual real real career choice. But uh, you know, I still have this uh, maybe dream in the back of my head that someday. I'll, when I when I have the opportunity to retire, maybe I'll move to Nashville and you know try and play in a hockey talk somewhere. But I've got to I've got to practice my guitar skills much much more <laughs> than there. I used to live in Nashville, and I tell you, the karaoke in Nashville is amazing. It's very um, you know you really got to be on top of your game. Okay, so it's very professionalized professionalized karaoke. Okay, good. All right, well I'll, is, I'll keep uh, that in mind. That's that's yeah. probably the right thing for me then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about Andreessen Horowitz a yeah. little bit. Um, obviously, it's grown into extremely well known. Firm. I don't know if it's one of the largest or, or whatnot. Probably not, but I assume that it's really kind of right there. Obviously, top tier. How many funds does uh, Andreessen have? Um, you know, you might not know it down to the fund, but uh, just kind of a yeah. ballpark figure. How many funds do you have out there? Yeah, so we're managing a total of about thirty-five billion dollars in assets today, oh, wow. and it's really across a couple different fund strategies. So um, we do kind of from seed stage investing, which could be you know a half a million million dollar investment all the way through towards what we call later stage venture, which could be as much as a $300, $350 million check in a more mature company. And then we're divided into kind of effectively four primary kind of uh, vertical strategies. So uh, we've got our venture strategy, which is predominantly consumer enterprise and financial services related technology companies. We have a bio and health practice that does both kind of, you know, the drug discovery side as well as kind of software in healthcare. Uh, we do a lot of work in the crypto Web3 space, uh, and then we also have a practice in gaming, uh, which is a relatively new vertical for us. So we've got essentially four early stage funds that correspond to those each of those verticals, and then we have one uh, overarching growth fund that can do, you know, as I said, kind of later stage investments in any of those domains as well. Okay, and uh, I assume the crypto fund is sucking up some auction in these in these days. Well, certainly crypto is in the news, as you know, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, look, we've we've always uh, we've been a big believer in kind of uh, the concept of crypto really as another kind of technological um, kind of infrastructure change where, you know, there are new sets of applications that we think will be available utilizing a distributed architecture. And so our primary investments tend to be early stage companies where, you know, they look a lot like, quite frankly, the rest of our startups where they are interesting entrepreneurs trying to do things that, you know, kind of are innovative and out there on the frontier. And certainly, you know, some of them will work and some of them will won't, but we certainly believe that the kind of movement of crypto and Web3 is an important change in the technological landscape that will, you know, bear fruit. Yeah, we're seeing that as well, in that when somebody calls us up and says, hey, I want to form a crypto fund, nine times out of 10 these days, they're not talking about buying tokens. They're yeah. talking about just making equity investments into a company that might be doing blockchain or Web3 or, you know, however they want to label themselves. But it's been a while since we've had people really excited about buying tokens. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, there's the tokens, of course, that trade in the kind of quasi, I wouldn't call it public markets, but at least, you know, the quasi publicly that right. obviously those, those tend to garner a lot of the attention in the media because they tend to obviously have high volatility. Um, you, you know, as, as you well noted with your clients, yeah, most of what we do is we tend to back early stage companies there is often intention over time that they might actually have a token that will derive from the work they're building. But kind of the, the you know core investment initially we're making is, do we think this team can ultimately build something that has value? And then the token really becomes kind of the economic, uh, you know, kind of incentive and, and monetization effort associated with that. Okay. Now, uh, investing in the early stage companies, do you all ever invest in LLCs or any structure other than a Delaware corporation? 
You know, uh, in general, no. I mean, we have on occasion done that. Um, uh, the re- there's really kind of a couple of reasons. One is just, you know, for our many of our investors are uh, tax free investors. And so we have to worry about kind of passing through, uh, you know, taxable income potentially to them and, you know, things like, you know, uh, uh, UBTI and things of that sort. Unfortunately, that could arise from LLCs. Um, and then the other thing is just, look, it's just, it's just, there's nothing inherently wrong with an LLC. It's just, it's just a different structure and not as well understood. And so, we worry a little bit about, you know, kind of if we invest in an LLC now, will other downstream investors also get comfortable with that structure? And therefore, are you potentially limiting the kind of availability of downstream capital for those businesses? So I would say I wouldn't say we've never done it, but I would say of the hundreds of deals we've done, I could probably count on one hand, you know, the number of times we've done it. Yeah. And I feel like at the seed stage, like I feel like eventually they're going to have to convert to a corporation. I think that's right. I think that's Might right. as well do it before the, uh, before right. you- It's a lot easier from a tax perspective and otherwise, as you well know, to kind of do that before you've got a lot of embedded gain in those companies. So yeah, in general, when we've seen LLCs at the very early stage, our, our, our primary motion is to help convince the entrepreneur and, you know, in their counsel, why we think doing the conversion now makes sense. Now, one thing that you mentioned in in the book, which is uh, no secret, is this idea of venture capitalists uh, being repeat players. Sure. Uh, whereas the founder of a company is not a repeat player, you know, maybe they're a serial entrepreneur and they had a couple of companies before at most. But whereas a VC is seeing deals just constantly and participating in deals constantly, a founder is just, uh, um, you, you know, it might just be the first or second time. Some folks, like we've had a guest on the the program, who thought that actually extended to the lawyers. And there is a sense of kind of venture capital um, uh, VC capture in that a law firm that is relying on venture venture capitalists, uh, similar to Andreessen Horowitz and some others, you know, might not negotiate as hard on yeah. behalf of a, a startup that's just kind of a one-time deal. Uh, what You know, from where you sit, what do you I wish, uh, Look, I can tell you from experience, I, uh, uh, I guess I wish that were true. That's not been my experience. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I look, maybe it varies a little bit on the geography. I think in particularly in and around Silicon Valley or places like New York where, you know, in other ecosystems, right, that have now really grown up as kind of important tech ecosystems. You know, my sense is um, not that the lawyers have an allegiance one way or another, but I think they recognize even rationally that there's a great, there's great value in representing both sides well, quite frankly, because look, you're right, the VCs will have repeat opportunities, but the entrepreneurs, many of those will go on to be, you know, 10, 15, 20 year clients. And certainly the business gets potentially a lot more complex and I assume lucrative as you get into M&A and you get into IPOs and stuff. So yeah, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that was the case, but my experience <laughs> is uh, even lawyers we've been on the other side of on deals uh, advocate very fearlessly for their uh, for their entrepreneurial clients when we're, uh, we're sitting across the table from them. So yeah. um, I, I haven't had that experience, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, why don't you talk about the speed of deals now versus uh, when you first started out thir- 13 and a half years ago, uh, yeah. however long, uh, what, what, what have you noticed? Yeah, so look, I think, uh, you know, we started in 09. Uh, and so we were just coming out of the global financial crisis. Uh, and so certainly at that time, and really until probably 2010, 2011, uh, the pace was, I would say, fairly moderate. Uh, and, you know, valuations also were kind of, uh, you know, uh, moderate in many respects. And then really kind of probably from 2011, 12, until, you know, just kind of last year, and we can talk about the current environment, I would say everything was kind of monotonically increasing uh, in pace and speed and valuation. Um, And it wouldn't be unusual in 2020 or 2021 to have an entrepreneur come to our offices and say, I've got five term sheets, uh, you know, from other firms that are very well respected. Are you interested? And if so, you know, kind of, can you tell me in 24 hours? Um, (laughs) uh, And, you know, that was a that was a short lived phenomenon, but but there was kind of an intense kind of, uh, you know, speed and pace associated with it. 
what's happened since 22, you know, in the broader kind of macro sell off that we've seen in the markets is um, just a, I would describe it as a little bit of heat being taken off the market. So in general, early stage deals are taking a little bit longer to get done. Prices are not down by 50 or 60 or 70 percent like we have seen in the public markets. But kind of at the margin, prices are a little bit softer. Um, and look, I, I think all that is actually, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. I don't see any like material slowdown in the supply side of entrepreneurs. I don't see anything catastrophic in terms of people's unwillingness to either back companies or to start companies. But I would say just the kind of tempo and the temperature has kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, decreased a bit. Do you all ever do debt deals? Um, you know, not very often. A lot of the companies, uh, certainly at the seed stage, will use kind of a safe often or something like a safe, you know, a convertible type structure. And so, you know, our preference is to do priced equity deals. But, you know, if there's a deal that's happening and, you know, that's really the only mechanism to to invest in, then we'll consider that. But again, if you look at the dollars we've deployed over time, you know, I would again, I would guess 95, 96 percent of our dollars have been initially in equity deals relative to sub 5 percent in kind of safes or other convertible debt structures. Mm -hmm. Now, back in uh, 2009, 2010, 2011, in your deals, were they primarily NVCA documents back then or was there a little more variance? Because now it seems like every deal is an NVCA. Yeah, I think. Yeah, if I go back and look at it, I still think for the most part it was NVCA. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, the big thing probably that's changed is a lot of us, notwithstanding the NVSA docs, would do what I would call very long form term sheets. Yeah. Um, and there certainly seems to be a tendency towards kind of, you know, much more stripped down term sheets and then just referencing, okay, let's just assume that we'll use standard NVCA documentation instead of having a five page term sheet that spells out what the IRA should look like and things of that sort. And so I think that's probably a good thing. Um, I, this I'd be curious, you know, your listeners over time, but our, you know, some lawyers I talk to, we have different debates, which is kind of simpler is better sometimes. And then, you know, there's a, definitely a camp, which is simpler means you're just now postponing and deferring uh, negotiations at the drafting stage that you could have done at the term sheet stage. But my sense is, um, in general, the NVCA documents have kept pace with what people want. And, uh, and I think that's certainly made it easier for both, uh, you know, venture capitalists and, you know, lawyers in this prompt in this context. Yeah, that's a good point. Because for us, uh, when we see longer term sheets, it's only for non US deals, a company yeah. that's outside yeah. an investor, that's when you get kind of 12 page term sheets with all these things that you got to put into the agreement, you know, and that right, takes right, time right. and people don't realize that they'll say, Oh, it's straightforward. It's like, no. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a I'm a big you know, I was I was a, a, a past chairman of the NBCA, so I, you would expect me to say this, but but I am a big fan of what they've done there. I think I think it's really been to the benefit of the industry to kind of simplify this stuff and make it clear, you know, what the bid and ask is on these things, so people are focused on the right stuff. Yeah, uh, let's talk about dual class stock. It's something yep. that's come up, uh, been prevalent. I mean, in this market, maybe you don't see it as much, but um, you know, Snap and some others, Google. Uh, it was in in the news, dual class. And then I felt there was a number of startups. When we get that initial call, that would say, "Hey, I want dual class." They're always afraid of like the company being taken away from them, even if it's yep. day one, right? Like somebody's just going to swoop in and take the company on day two. Yeah. Um, but uh, dual class stock. You know, talk about that a little bit. I think in the book you mentioned that you don't really see it. Is that still the case, or t talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, it, I think it's a little uh, more nuanced. So here's what we do see more commonly, and I think probably you know you mentioned your practice in New York. I think we probably see it more in New York as well. Is the concept of founder-controlled boards in the in the private company context? So mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. You know, it, when when Mark Zuckerberg raised money for Facebook in 2004. 
Um, the idea, quite frankly, of a common control board was fairly, you know, kind of, you know, anomalous. Nobody really kind of saw that or had it. In fact, if anything, there were VC controlled boards for most of the 30 or 40 years prior to that. Um, and I do think, you know, not just Mark alone, but that ushered in an era, uh, particularly because, you know, just uh, the growth in the entrepreneur class of more common controlled boards. If I look at our portfolio today, I don't know the exact number, but I'd say probably, you know, 50 to percent to two thirds of our companies probably are common controlled boards as private companies. And so as a result of that, then, yes, we tend not to see a lot of dual class structures in private companies, because I think entrepreneurs get comfortable that the main thing they worry about with dual class is your point about being voted out of the company. And so by having common control board, they can uh, take care of that. You know, on, on, when the companies go public, I think the numbers are something like a third of, you know, 25% to a third of venture backed companies tend to have dual class structures. I didn't realize it was that high. Okay. Yeah. And that, that could be more a phenomenon in the last five years, but it's, but at least if I look at stuff, uh, if I look across our portfolio, I think it's probably somewhere in that range. You know, my, my personal view on dual class is the idea, I, I am sympathetic to the idea that kind of, you know, founders should have more uh, leeway and flexibility, particularly in the early years of being public. Um, I have also publicly said that the idea to me of sunsets and some reasonable time period, you know, under which, you know, we don't have kind of you know, dynastic legacies for these companies, I think is a bad idea. And so, you know, we've seen some of our companies do somewhere kind of seven to 10 year type sunset provisions. And in general, you know, as board members, we would be supportive of those, you know, again, with the idea that, you know, we're not talking about things getting passed to, you know, people's children and, and grandchildren. Right. Now, what about springing dual class yeah. as opposed to kind of dual class in there? Do you see springing? Yeah, we, we, more? I'd say it's still a minority. But uh, yes, we do see uh, when entrepreneurs ask us as a private company often for dual class as a private company, that's our typical response is to say, hey, look, we're comfortable with a springing structure if you think it's easier to negotiate that in the docs today. And so, yeah, we have done that in the past and we're comfortable with that idea. Uh, we have not been I don't want to be absolutist because maybe it's not zero, but I, I I don't recall ever seeing true dual class structures in a private company that we funded, but springing for sure. Yes. Okay. And for those uh, listening who might uh, uh, be thinking, uh, what, what what are they talking about? Dual classes uh, when the founder gets 10 or 20 or sometimes even more votes per share, and then everyone else just gets one vote, effective, uh, a, a way to control the the company. Let's talk about board seats. Yeah. And uh, you've mentioned before that there's a limiting factor for GPs and that the number of board seats that they can sit on. And I believe you said before that 10 to 12 or something like that. Now, when you say GP, Scott, uh, can, can you break down kind of what do you mean? Do you mean an individual like yourself or do you mean like, you know, whoever's in the GP of a fund? Uh, yeah, sure. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right, which is the fundamental limiter to scale in our business, particularly because in our business, with the exception of seed companies, almost everything we do, we do take a board seat. We want to be an active part of the board. And so, yeah, there is just a finite amount of time in the day. And, you know, 10 or 12 is kind of probably on average what it looks like in the industry. I can tell you, we certainly have GPs and I've seen GPs with more than that. And some people are, you know, maybe better at managing their schedules than others. <laughs> but that is kind of the kind of mathematical limit for us, which is, you know, our ability to deploy capital at some point is a function of do we have enough general partners with board seat capacity to be able to take on new opportunities. Um, in our firm, uh, I mentioned we have a number of funds. We have, you know, kind of these four verticals and then growth funds and stuff. So we have about 28, 29 total general partners in the firm. And for us, all a general partner means is somebody who has the kind of ability to make an investment decision and ultimately to sit on a board. So, uh, you know, we have kind of other roles. We call them deal partners, which are people who are not yet at the general partner level who are very, very active in diligence and sourcing and all the other things. 
but they tend not to sit on boards and they and they they don't have kind of unilateral, uh, you know, kind of decision making authority at that level. So, yeah, when you think about that, right, that kind of gives you some kind of finite sense of scaling of the companies. And so for us to grow as a firm, we either need to, you know, have more GPs. So we need to decide there are more people that we want to add to the mix that can make those decisions. Um, or we need to figure out ways in which we can kind of do what we call recycling board seats, which is, OK, at some point in time, is there a reasonable period of time for somebody to drop off of a board? And there's logical places like, for example, when a company goes public, right. you know, it probably makes sense some reasonable period after they go public for us to kind of, you know, give up that board seat and allow, you know, more institutional investors to take them. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you do have companies that are private for very long periods of time. And so sometimes you also have to, also have to decide, uh, does it make sense to kind of try to, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, have someone come off a board seat even potentially before it's a public company. You ever have an issue with somebody who's having so much fun as a director they don't want to come off even if you we, all want we, to? We do. Uh, we, <laughs> we do. We we have this conversation all the time, and as you can imagine, <laughs> right? You know, from a securities law perspective, not only are they having fun, but it also means if we're holding shares in our fund, of course, we are then subject to insider trading windows and other right. things that we think about distributing our shares. So it does limit our degrees of freedom. But yes, we do have that. Uh, we do have that argument. The um, the best economic tool I can tell you that we have for battling that is in our limited partnership agreement. You know, oftentimes, as you may know, directors of public companies often receive equity grants or something as compensation for their service. And in our limited partnership agreement, as long as they're still on the board uh, of the company, um, all that all those that stock essentially goes to the fund as opposed to them individually. So uh, we at least have tried to kind of deal with that by creating some incentives for people to get off boards at some point in time. Now, let's talk about when a company goes public, when a company does go through the IPO. What are you all looking at there typically in terms of selling your stock? You know, obviously, you're not a hedge fund, right? You're not running hedge funds. So you're probably not making investments in public equity. All of a sudden, you have some public equity. So, uh, you know, there might be various lockup provisions and the like. Are you trying to sell right away or strategically? And, you know, how long do you keep it? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we have literally a whole process. We have a distribution committee that talks about each of these companies on a regular basis. Our, our general default view is this, which is, as you said, look, the main function for which our limited partners have given us money is to hopefully generate venture-like returns for them. And a lot of that, of course, you know, not always, but a lot of that will accrue during the private markets. So we really think about it as a financial decision, which is, okay, do we think from here, wherever the stock price is, you know, kind of in the public markets, do we think there is still an opportunity for a venture-like return? You know, do we have confidence in the founder? We have confidence in the team. Do they, you know, kind of is the market big enough to sustain a company, uh, you know, at scale? And there's no magic to it, but I mean, if you think about when I say kind of venture-type returns at that scale, that really means do you think kind of can you generate call it three to five x returns over a three to five year period? Uh, and so we're kind of constantly trying to re-underwrite our thinking there. And there are certainly times where, uh, particularly in the last ten years, quite frankly, where those types of returns were achievable in the public markets. And so you would have been better off holding versus distributing. But, you know, again, the, the you know, the over, you know, overarching kind of question is always, okay, can our limited partners access those fund, those stocks elsewhere with similar information? And so we also have to believe that we have some insight into the market, maybe that's just not, you know, as, you know, is not, you know, kind of generally known to the market that helps us understand what we think the price appreciation opportunity might be. Okay. Um now, if someone were going to be a board member for the first time, what would your advice be to to that person? Although, let's say a private company. Yeah, so for private companies, um, actually, um, this is interesting, and it's actually this is something that we've worked on initially. We did this with Stanford, and we still we now continue the program on our own, which is kind of effectively like a version of a director's college for 
private board members. So one of the things that you know we found early on was there's a lot. If you're a public board member, there's lots of training and other programs you can get. There's not a whole lot of programs that are applicable on the private side. Um, and so we've tried to, to put together a number of programs to help people who've never been board members really understand, you know, all the way from the basics of, you know, what is, you know, duty of care and duty of loyalty and all that good stuff to how do you deal with a recapitalization or how do you think through insider, you know, led financings and things of that sort. So anyway, so that's been good. So I would say I would encourage anybody who hasn't been on a board. Number one is just, you know, talk to as many people as you can who've been on boards, try to identify some of these resources that are out there and, and look, I think, you know, these companies are always looking for smart people who can help them in their business. But I do think it's important to have some basic grounding in, OK, like what are the common scenarios that private company board members do? And as, as you know, as you know, it's it's just very different from a public company board where there's a lot more infrastructure. There's a lot more kind of, quite frankly, legal support and otherwise that kind of helps manage the day to day of those board activities. Every time somebody approaches me about being a director, they're looking for a free general counsel services. Ah, exactly. Right. Okay. Well, maybe we can work on that one together. <laughs> uh, let's talk about fiduciary duties. So we probably both been in board of director meetings when a couple of people are pounding the table. They represent a VC fund and they want liquidity yesterday. And yeah. you know they're giving the CEO a hard time. Hey, what's the plan? What's the plan? What's the plan? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the fiduciary duty does it go to the preferred stockholders? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think this is something that is hard. And we do again, we do this training internally also in our firm for people who have not been in public company boards before. Um, you know, we we kind of call it. Look, it's it's a mini law school class here, which is exactly that point, which is you got to remember who your fiduciary duties are owed to. And um, and I think it's I think it's an interesting one. A lot of initial people when they enter the venture business don't understand that distinction between preferred shareholders and common shareholders. And and quite frankly, not that they should, because uh, until they see it, uh, they may not have to deal with it. But yeah, look, I mean, I think the other uh, the other side of that is, and this is maybe just a little bit of a function of how we manage as a business, is I think venture capitalists have come to realize over time, and, and certainly we believe this as well, that look, so much of what we're investing in is this team and is this founding team. And as I mentioned, you couple that with common controlled boards in many cases, you know, we can we can agitate, we can, you know, try to persuade, but at the end of the day, you know, certainly unless the CEO, you know, and or you know, the kind of founder group that controls the board wants to do something. You know, there's really no, there's really often not a mechanism for a venture capitalist to force somebody to do that. And, you know, personally for us, from a philosophical perspective as a firm, we think that's fine. We think that's the that's the bet we're making is, you know, we're backing this team, and hopefully, you know, through persuasion and otherwise, we can help, you know, reason with them. But at the end of the day, that's the bet we made. And so, if they're intransigent about what they want to do, then, you know, quite frankly, that's their prerogative. Are there some uh, VC funds that have a reputation for bouncing a CEO? Yeah, uh, I, I just, I'm not going to name any names, okay. uh, but, but yeah, and, and but I will say, um, you, you know, in fairness, for for most of the for a lot of the early history of VCs, because you know, VC in the at least kind of in the modern incarnations, we know it really started kind of early 1970s, and and there were certainly firms before that, but I would say kind of the modern version of VC was probably early 1970s. There was more of kind of from the 1970s to kind of early 2000s, there was more of that kind of archetype of hey, let's take a technical product founder. And let's marry that individual with a professional CEO uh, from the very beginning. What's really changed in the VC business over the last really, you know, 10 to 15 years, and I do think Mark Zuckerberg was, you know, a prototype of this or an archetype of this, um, is this idea, and it's a big part of our firm, which is the idea of founder uh, and, and product person as CEO. And that doesn't mean that all of them will naturally grow into the long-term CEO role or all of them will want to be the CEO, but I would say certainly for us as a firm, what we believe very strongly is we like backing a founder who wants to be the CEO. 
And oftentimes we will, you know, oftentimes we will not make an investment decision early on in a company if we feel like, you know, that product founder doesn't want to at least kind of try to grow into that CEO role because we like that kind of um, marriage between the person who has the product vision and the person who's controlling the strategy and the capital allocation. And so that's really part and parcel of our firm's kind of ethos is the idea of kind of founder as CEO. Now, is part of that because the founder like lives and breathes blood, sweat, and tears and all that into a company, whereas a professional CEO, it might just be another job? I think there's a couple of things. Yeah. So one is, I think that's right. Uh, my partner, Ben Horowitz, has written about this, but there is kind of what I would call almost a moral suasion that a founder has that a professional CEO doesn't have. And that's not a normative statement. It's just that, hey, the person who kind of birthed the idea and who, to your point, has kind of you know lived and breathed it for so long has an ability to, I think, talk to the company, you know, talk about strategy just from a sense of authenticity in a way that sometimes a professional CEO can't. The other is just a more practical issue, which is, um, you know, we invest in mostly software-based businesses. And at the end of the day, we believe these are product cycle-based companies. And what you often see in technology companies is you have a product cycle, and hopefully you can ride that product cycle as long as you can. But at some point, there's a technological change that puts you on the other side of that product cycle. And the key to long-term success for these businesses is, can they kind of, you know, ride that wave up and down, but then find the next wave up uh, in the new technology inflection point? And that's why, you know, we believe because these are such kind of product cycle driven companies, we believe very strongly that the person who kind of had the initial product vision really is, you know, much more capable in many cases than somebody who's come in from the outside who might be very well skilled as a CEO, but not, might not have kind of the product chops as the original team. We think those can, you know, create very long enduring, you know, very profitable businesses. Okay, great. Uh, I'd like to ask you about conflicts of interest. So you yeah. taught a corporate governance course, I believe, at, at Stanford. I don't know how much you concentrated on conflicts, yes. uh, but obviously it's a huge deal in the venture capital world. Uh, I, um, uh, I like in, in the book, you quoted John Doerr, no conflict, no interest. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we've got some folks like that. Don't worry about conflicts of interest and the like. Uh, can you yeah. Can, can, can you talk about that a little bit? You know, uh, how you all deal with conflicts? Do you deal with conflicts? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a couple layers to this onion. So one is kind of uh, the, the title of the course actually was the dual fiduciary is kind of what we talked about, this idea oh, okay, great. of kind of effectively general partners as fiduciaries to obviously their LPs. And as well, in the context you just mentioned, you know, fiduciaries to the common shareholders when they're sitting on boards. And sometimes those things do come in conflicts, right? You know, often where you have potentially, you know, sales of companies that are kind of less than ideal, where they may not clear liquidation preferences, and how do we deal with kind of those types of conflicts. So that's kind of one layer. I think the other layer of conflicts uh, is the ability of a venture capital firm to invest in more than one company that might be going after a particular space. And, um, you know, what I mean, I'll give you a simple example of that, which is we're investors in Lyft. Um, you know, it would probably be very difficult to, with a straight face, say you could be an investor in Lyft and an investor in Uber at the same time, as, as private companies at least. And, and part of that is, I think, what a venture capital firm is doing in many respects is lending their kind of brand uh, to that company as well. And so when you have a company literally that is competing head for head for the exact same you know, kind of customer, it's pretty hard to do that. Where this becomes a lot more nuanced is particularly when you have newer fields that are yet developed. So uh, maybe a simple one, since it's in the news, is if we talk about AI, for example, since, you know, there's all kinds of talk about chat GPT and AI and other things. You know, today, there's a relatively small number of companies in that space. And the space is obviously very new and therefore ill-defined that you can imagine a company saying, hey, if you invest in us, you know, we are your your AI bet, basically. And you can also imagine venture capitalists saying, well, wait a second, like, 
you know, it's possible that over the next 10 years, this could be a tremendously large category and there could be tens of thousands of companies. And so I can't really give you that assurance that you are, you know, my only AI bet. And so a lot of the dance and discussion between entrepreneurs and venture capitalists tends to happen in these more newly formed industries where kind of the, the kind of parameters of what will be a conflict, you know, um, you know, kind of are, are somewhat undefined. And so our general approach is, look, um, you know, we certainly are not going to invest in things that are literally directly in conflict with other stuff that's in our company. But these markets do tend to be much more complicated than that. And I think some things that may look like conflict at the beginning tend to evolve as the market changes. And, um, you know, worst case scenario, if we have to put up, you know, effectively, you know, kind of information barriers between partners and in the firm, we'll do that. Um, our hope, of course, would be to avoid them altogether. But sometimes, again, you know, markets do evolve. Sometimes they evolve to be more expansive. Sometimes, you know, things come together in a way that you didn't anticipate. And then you have to deal with, obviously, again, you know, kind of information, uh, you know, disclosure and, and, and you know, kind of walling off things from different partners. What about going to the LPAC, the Limited Partner Advisory Committee? Yeah, so so that's the third element of conflicts, actually, which is, I would say, kind of, yes, conflicts almost between allocations of deals within a fund structure, right. for example. Um and so, yeah, we do, you know, in our in our limited partnership agreement, we do have our LPAC, our advisory board, as kind of the arbiter on those types of things. Where those tend to come into play, just for your listeners, is where, say, hey, maybe we've invested in fund one in this company, and we no longer have available capital in fund one, but the business is doing well, and we want to invest, you know, the next round of financing in fund three or fund four. And so there's this question of kind of, are you taking an opportunity from the fund one LPs and giving them to your fund three LPs? What I found in general is... Um, We've been lucky, number one, we have a very great advisory board and they're very responsive on these things. And the, the best way as a general partner, hopefully to minimize those is to obviously maintain as much continuity of your LP base as you can over funds. So even though maybe everybody doesn't have the exact same economic allocation, you're not talking about completely different strategies or completely different classes of LPs so that hopefully you can mitigate some of what is in fact a legal conflict, but mitigate it uh, such that it's not an actual conflict from a financial perspective. Well, this has been great, Scott. Thank you so much for your time. As we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to tell the audience, like uh, kind of um, uh, legal mistakes that you see or to, to would-be entrepreneurs out there, people who uh, you know want to chuck their law degree? Sure. Or, and, uh, yeah, I'll, a, give, you, I'll, I'll um, give you a couple of things. So one is, one is I will give my pitch for the Full Employment Act for lawyers. And I, I tell all entrepreneurs <laughs> this in my classes that I teach too, that Lawyers are your best friend, and you know, do not find yourself in a situation where you're negotiating with a venture capitalist without a lawyer by your side. So, uh, you know, notwithstanding, uh, you know, kind of my own personal um, professional choice, uh, the lawyers are an incredibly important part of this ecosystem. And, and you know, again, we encourage all entrepreneurs to make sure that they've got them. And then, my, my only other advice I would say, uh, which I often give to both to entrepreneurs and lawyers, is keep it simple. Which sounds very obvious, but um, what I often find is sometimes. People are people don't think about kind of the fact that we are likely to raise multiple rounds of financing for a company. And sometimes, you know, we find either, you know, protective provisions or other things that, you know, kind of unduly give, you know, control over companies to prior investors, maybe because they could. But those things, you know, unfortunately become precedents for things down the line. So the easier you can you can uh, make things, the simpler you can make your term sheets early on. I think you'll find you save yourself a lot of heartache. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on the program. Thank you. Uh, coming and giving us all this this fantastic information. It was a lot of fun. Uh, hope to have you on the show again. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. 
To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.